Hello, friends, and welcome to part five, the finale of The Lost Voyage of Shackleton, The Edge of Human Endurance. This series has been a truly deep dive into the world of Antarctic exploration. I started researching this story before I even posted my first episode. In the end, it took me four months, 187 pages, single-spaced, 58 primary sources, and 67,431 words to bring you this story. The average novel is 50,000 to 70,000 words. I wrote more for this series than for anything I ever did in grad school, and all of it was worth it. I'm excited to move on to the next subject for a deep episode, but at the same time, I'm a bit sad to let this story go. Reading the diaries of the crew and the works of Shackleton and all the subsequent research I found about them, I can't help but feel a special connection to this crew that lived and adventured so long ago, even though they would never know I existed, or that well over a century later, some history podcaster would be telling their adventure into a microphone that would transmit their story through a wireless network connecting to some weird and alien thing called the internet. But I did, so here we are, and here we go. When we left our crew last week, they had finally hit land for the first time in 497 days. But they landed on Elephant Island, an unexplored and uninhabited piece of rock about 820 miles, or 1,321 kilometers, from South Georgia Island, which was the only place left where they could find help. So Shackleton, along with five others, took a small whaling vessel called the James Caird, packed it with six weeks of rations, and headed into the roughest patch of sea in the world on a pitiful 22-foot boat made of oak and elm and totally unequipped for the journey that lay ahead. They were probably going to die, and they knew it. But there was no other choice. No one knew where they were. No one was coming. And if they didn't get themselves out, no one would ever know their story. They had to try. Shackleton and his small crew shoved off into the Weddell Sea, heading for the dreaded Drake Passage. They left 22 men behind on Elephant Island. So, let's go to them, a century back, thousands of miles down to the bottom of the world, and let's find out the ending to one of the greatest stories of human endurance history has ever seen. Let's go find Shackleton. I'm your host, Kristen Robine-Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. Shackleton and the five men with him were a speck of nothingness rising and falling on the heaving swells that dwarfed their small wooden craft, too small, too unequipped for the journey ahead of them. The vast, ancient waters were indifferent to them, and whatever miracle, luck, or coincidence that had allowed them to remain afloat in the roughest sea in the world could not afford them infinite time. They were on a rescue mission. The six of them, with Shackleton at the lead, were heading for South Georgia Island, where they knew a whaling station was waiting. From there, they could commission a ship to return to Elephant Island and rescue the 22 men still stranded there. Those left behind had nothing to do but wait 
and hope that those navigating through the Drake Passage would beat the odds that were so stacked against them, because if the boat sank and the six within it became just another casualty of the sea, everyone on that island would die too. They were sailing as fast as they could, sails raised, four-hour shifts at the tiller now. While one poor soul was on shift, being battered with the cold spray of the sea, the others were huddled beneath the bow, beneath the decking hammered on by McNish, the expedition's carpenter, right before the journey. It was cramped beneath the decking, the roof too low for anyone to sit fully upright. The floor was covered in rocks that had been added as ballast for the journey, and the crew's knees and hands were rubbed raw from crawling over them. Their skin was covered in saltwater boils, and their hands were a patchwork of missing skin, frostbite having eaten through them. They were six days in. But even in this most miserable of circumstances, their grit remained unbreakable. They even clung to their good spirits, especially McCarthy, the trawlerman that Shackleton had chosen to accompany them on the rescue mission. He was chosen partly for his strength and skill as a sailor, but mostly because he had a way of keeping humor alive in the most devastating of circumstances. When Worsley the navigator would relieve McCarthy of his turn at the tiller, the man would be frostbitten, soaked through, his beard frozen like a hairy popsicle. He'd smile, look at Worsley, and brightly say, It's a grand day, sir, then retire to the bow to restlessly situate himself over the rocks and ribs of the boat. They had been given a few minutes of sunlight, a tear in the sky, opening just enough to allow Worsley to configure their position with his sextant and chronometer. He announced that they had made it 238 miles, or 383 kilometers, and were a third of the way to South Georgia Island. And for once, they had been going in the right direction. Almost in response to their relief, a storm began to rage, and a gale swept over them. They had been at full sail, harnessing the wind to increase their speed, but now, the sea spray that had been berating them began to freeze, solidifying into heavy ice within the first hour of the storm and making the boat dangerously top-heavy. The sails had to be taken down as the wind was so strong it was causing them to flounder. But the sails weren't the only things that were freezing. The oars, there were four of them in all, were lashed to the sides of the boat. They hadn't needed them when the sails were up, so they were tied there out of the way but now they were accumulating ice rapidly. One of the most recurring problems they had was dealing with the huge waves and swells that crashed against the sides of the boat. Water was constantly being poured into the boat and they had to bail it out with a pump. Some of the water that crashed into the boat would simply spill back out over the sides, but the ice on the oars was growing so high that it was preventing that water from leaving the boat before it froze. And before long, the boat had sunk another four inches into the water due to the added weight of the heavy ice. Their only solution was to start chopping and clubbing at the ice, loosening as much of it as they could while it accumulated. They started with the oars, and two of them were pitched over the side as soon as they were loose in a haphazard attempt to reduce weight. After this, they were completely soaked and retreated back under the decking to wait out the storm taking turns again at the tiller. 
beneath the bow, sleeping, even when there wasn't a screaming gale outside, was next to impossible. They couldn't move the rocks for ballast without jeopardizing the boat, and laying on top of them in their soaked reindeer skin sleeping bags didn't help anything. There was always something painfully stabbing through somewhere. And now, the hair from the reindeer sleeping bags was shedding. They were so soaked that the hairs were coming loose in the thousands, and they got into literally everything. They would breathe, and hair would get in their mouths. It was in their food, all over the rocks and the boat. It would stick to them, wet, in clumps, all over their skins and on their clothes, even in their beards. As they weathered the night in the storm, they noticed that the streams of water that continuously ran in rivets and small streams throughout the boat were now only trickling. A strange change of events in such a violent storm. But when the dawn broke, they saw why. During the stormy night, the entire boat above the waterline had become covered in ice, half a foot thick in places. They scrambled to start chopping once again at all the ice they could, but it was so cold that the wind was freezing them as well. Each one of them would take turns chopping at the ice, usually only able to endure about five minutes at a time. They had to do this on their hands and knees because standing up on an icy deck in a small boat in a storm was a certain way to make sure you were swept overboard. While they were straining with chopping at the ice, they spotted an albatross. It had around an 11-foot wingspan and effortlessly glided through the screaming gale with hypnotic grace, as if it were just any other day, the harsh weather just an innocuous happenstance on its journey. The crew stared up at it in envy, and Worsley remarked that the albatross would make their same journey in about 15 hours. They were now on their seventh day. They kept chopping at the ice for hours until they could feel the ship regain some buoyancy, once they were confident the ship was no longer in danger of capsizing, Shackleton ordered the stove they had brought to be lit, and a ration of hot milk to be given to everyone. The water in the bottom of the boat had frozen as well, but the combined heat from the stove and their bodies worked to melt it enough for them to pump it out. The stove, although it brought some much-needed heat to the crew, was too smoky to be kept lit, and the blubber fire had to be extinguished as it was getting difficult to breathe. While they were drinking the milk, they noticed there was a smell of something rancid in the air. After a cursory examination, they discovered it was coming from the reindeer sleeping bags that had now been soaked through for a week. They opened them to find green slime had begun to grow on the insides. The bags were rancid and had to be thrown overboard. It was April, and the days were growing shorter, and as night began to turn the stormy gray sky into a cloudy blackness, they knew that the storm was probably going to rage on through a second night. There was nothing they could do but sit under the deck and wait for morning. The wind screamed throughout the night, and they slipped for moments into unconsciousness at the sound of it. When morning came, they found their boat once again frozen solid and repeated the same cold, monotonous chore of breaking her free of ice. While they were doing this, they were hit with a hard wave. This was nothing peculiar, as they had been hit with waves for days now, but this time, the head of the boat didn't rise back up, and a shiver reverberated throughout the ship, because the sea anchor was gone. The rope holding it in place had frozen and snapped, and they lost it to the sea. 
Shackleton wrote of how serious this was. The anchor was what allowed the boat to keep her head up to the oncoming waves in the storm. If she were to meet a large wave with her head down, it could mean the end of them. So they hoisted the sails, hoping that would compensate and could do nothing more but simply hope, simply wait and see if this would be enough to see them through this storm that was careening into its third day. It seemed it would never end. They didn't know it, but at the time they were sailing in the Caird, this pitiful 22-foot wooden boat of oak and elm, a 500-ton steamer ship had gone down in this same storm on this same sea. But the storm did end, gradually. The wind died steadily throughout the night, and by morning, the sun peaked through the gray that had hovered over them for three days. Worsley used the sun to configure their new position. They were 403 miles, or 648 kilometers, from South Georgia. They were halfway there, and for the first time, they began to believe they might just make it out of this alive. Day eight, day nine, day 10, day 11, four hours at the tiller, wonder where you are, try to sleep on the rocks under the bow, heat up some milk, bail out the water, tend your wounds, four hours at the tiller. Again, four hours at the tiller, wonder where you are, try to sleep on the rocks under the bow, heat up some milk, bail out the water, tend your wounds, four hours at the tiller. This was repeated day in and day out. Their bodies were bruised, sore, rubbed raw, and scarred permanently in places from boils and frostbite. On the tenth night, Worsley discovered he couldn't stand up or straighten his body after his turn at the tiller. His muscles had cramped, his body fed up with him in this whole journey. The others carried him and placed him beneath the decking and massaged his muscles until he could move his body again. Crean, the expedition's second officer, began to sing at the tiller. Sometimes it was his attempt at the wearing of the green, a song dating all the way back to the Irish Rebellion of 1798, when the Irish rose up against the occupying English. At the time of the rebellion, it was illegal to wear the color green, as it was seen as a rebellious act, an indicator of support for Irish nationalism, and may have been punishable by hanging. And Crean would sing this song almost in a trance, Oh, Paddy dear, and did you hear the news that's going around? The shamrock is by law forbid to grow on Irish ground. No more St. Patrick's Day will keep his color can be seen. For there's a cruel law against the wearing of the green. Sometimes he would veer away from the lyrics and begin moaning out an indiscernible mantra devoid of tune and monotonous. Shackleton compared it to the chanting of a Buddhist monk at his prayers. But it was cheerful in tone and almost comforting, a welcome relief from the dull lapping of waves against the ship. And hours would pass this way. Six men, the sound of waves, the thoughts of home, and a voice of song at the tiller. 
Just after midnight on the twelfth day, Shackleton took his turn at the helm. Crean and McNish went below to pump water from the hull. The wind had picked up, and through the dark he could see the sky was overcast. In the distance, he saw a rift of light he began to mistake for the dawn. But it couldn't be dawn already. The light approached, and he heard a strange hissing sound that soon erupted into a roar. It wasn't the light of dawn, it was a monstrous wave, and it was heading right for them. Shackleton wrote that in his 26 years' experience on the sea, he had never seen a wave this gigantic. He screamed above the wind, For God's sake, hold on! It's got us! And then it hit. Shackleton was knocked from his seat at the tiller. For a moment, it was unclear if he had been tossed clean into the ocean. There was nothing in the world but water at that moment, and the crew couldn't tell if they had turned over. But when the wave rolled on, they were miraculously still afloat. But the boat was now full of water. They grabbed anything they could to bail it out, and after an exhaustive two-hour fight, they were safe once again. The glass on their compass had broken, and their stove had been hurled into the side of the ship, but both instruments were found to still work. And dawn finally did come. It was day 13, and Worsley once again configured their position. They were now 91 miles, 146 kilometers from land. It was too soon to look for signs of the island, but their eyes scanned the water for seaweed, driftwood, anything that would signal progress. The sea swelled, slowing their pace, and greatly frustrating Shackleton. He had required since the beginning of the boat journey that they remain cheerful, at least on the surface. He wanted to avoid antagonisms and keep morale as high as possible, but he was strained. They all were. They were so close to land, so close to the end of their suffering on this ferocious sea, and now the water was slowing them down as if to mock their progress. A small bird with a bobtail fluttered down to the boat, curious about what these strange creatures were. It darted around the boat everywhere, buzzing in their ears, zooming this way and that. Finally, Shackleton snapped. He leapt to his feet and swatted at the bird, cursing, screaming all the pent-up rage of this 13-day boat journey, this year and a half on the ice, the years prepping for this journey that had failed. All of it erupted as he went after this tiny bird that dodged, thwarted his swinging hands, and flew away, unperturbed. Shackleton realized the display he had been making and instantly regretted his outburst. He had tried setting a good example for the others, and he couldn't ask them to control their emotions if he couldn't control his own. He sat back down, embarrassed, and said nothing. The rest of the day was mercifully uneventful. That night, when Crean prepped the evening hoosh, a mixture of water and penguin or seal meat, he noticed their water rations were saltier than normal. They had brought two casks of water with them that had been cracked upon loading, allowing seawater to mix into them. The incursion of salt had been minimal, so they used their rations anyway. They had no choice. But being finished with the first cask and opening the second one, Crean noticed that it had turned brackish. It was so salty, it was approaching dangerous. 
and half of it had leaked out. They had melted some of the ice that had formed on the boat, but that water had all been used by now. Crean asked Shackleton what to do, and angrily, Shackleton replied there was nothing they could do, so they had to drink it. Not only was it salty, but those reindeer hairs that were everywhere had somehow made their way into the water supply as well, so they had to strain it through bits of gauze from their medicine chest. It was now extremely important that they make a landing soon. Their mouths became dry and their tongues were swollen. They couldn't get the taste of salt out of their mouths. Shackleton reduced them to half a pint of salty water per day. According to the Mayo Clinic, the average adult male needs an average of 3.7 liters a day. They were running out of time. That night, Shackleton asked Worsley how accurate he thought their position was. Worsley replied that he believed his calculations should be correct, give or take about 10 miles, or 16 kilometers, but he admitted that a mistake was always possible. Beyond South Georgia Island, they would have no chance of hitting anything. The closest landmass after South Georgia would have been South Africa, 3,000 miles, or 4,800 kilometers away, and they would be long dead by then. If the sea didn't kill them, thirst and starvation would. It makes me wonder if Shackleton hadn't ordered them to bring the rifle along for more than just hunting. The morning broke, and it was a stormy gray day that matched their mood. They scanned the horizon all day, aching to see the island that was their last chance. But there was nothing. It was just the same things they had seen every day, gray skies and water as far as the eye could see. Vincent, another trawlerman that Shackleton had ordered accompany him, had stopped actively trying to help in any way. He had been a bit of a bully at camp, and Shackleton had taken him along, not trusting him to behave himself if left on Elephant Island with the others. This may be part of why Shackleton denied him the Polar Medal later, but there's not much information about that. Night came once again. They took their turns at the tiller and watched through the darkness, hoping to see the outline of rock against the black sky. But the sun rose on another day, another foggy morning. Then, at 10 a.m., they passed by a small collection of seaweed, an indication land might be near. The fog was thick and not giving anything away. A while later, they spotted cormorants flying overhead, a good sign, as it was believed these birds didn't wander more than 15 miles, or 24 kilometers, from land. Around noon, the fog lifted somewhat, although the clouds were still hanging low over the water. Then, just for a moment, the fog lifted, and there, ten miles away, were the black, snow-capped cliffs of South Georgia. As quickly as it appeared, it was gone, the fog swallowing it whole. But that didn't matter. They had seen it, and they were heading right for it. Shackleton finally broke the silence, saying, We've done it. But the journey wasn't over yet. They had to find a safe landing spot. To head straight for the land they were seeing would have been suicidal. There were too many reefs, and the rock was a sheer cliff that rose from the sea. As they approached, they began to see tufts of grass growing on the island. It was the first growing live plant they had seen in 16 months. When they had landed on Elephant Island, they had found it to be a barren rock. But this place had life. They had charts, but they weren't sure exactly which part of the island they were looking at. They wanted to get as close to the whaling station as possible, 
but given the poor water rations and the rough sea around the island, they would make the first landing they saw. It was slow going, and it soon became apparent that they wouldn't find anything before dark. So they retreated to calmer water to wait out the night. They were disappointed, but they were heartened to know they had just one more night to endure. But of course, it wasn't an easy one. They were bombarded with hail and gale force winds and the violent waters of a cross sea. That night felt eternal. But morning came like it always did. Though the sunrise was invisible to them as the skies were too gray and cloudy to afford more than a glowing light behind the dark gray clouds. They couldn't even see the land anymore, but they knew it was there. It was stormy and they were tossed between the waves of a torrid cross sea as they slowly made their way towards land. Avoiding the reefs and rocks was a constant strain and they had to bail water out at nearly constant intervals. The charts they had were rough. No one at this point in history had trekked across the island. The area around the whaling station was well known, but the rest of the island was impassable, full of glaciers, mountains, and crevasses that could swallow a traveler whole. They had been to that whaling station before. It had been their last stop before they finally headed out onto their journey 16 months ago. It was where they were warned about the pack ice and the whalers had urged Shackleton to wait to head into the Weddell Sea until the winter was over. But he was itchy to make history, and he ignored their advice. And he got stuck in that pack ice. Now, nearly a year and a half later, they were fighting to get back, lips cracked and bleeding from dehydration, and a trail of hardships endured weighing on them. Throughout the day, they battled with the water and the waves until the sun set once again. They were frustrated at having to spend another night on the boat as they had wholeheartedly believed they were going to hit land the previous day. In the morning, they set a course straight for land, but it wasn't easy. The wind was slowing them down and four different times it had pushed them back as they made their approach. Finally, when the afternoon light was waning and they were starting to fear the darkness would force them to remain in the boat again for another night, Shackleton ordered the sails be lowered, and they took to the oars, two at a time, and navigated their way towards a small cove settled between the cliffs. It was protected by a reef, but there was a narrow opening so small that they had to bring the oars in to clear it. But they did clear it. The bottom of the cairn grated against the rocky beach, and the crew of six leapt out and pulled their boat safely on shore. They noticed the trickling of fresh water streaming down the rocks at the beach. All of them fell to their hands and knees and lapped greedily as it, and finally satiated their thirst and washed the taste of sea from their mouths. They had made it to South Georgia Island, 522 days after they had left it. And now they were one step closer to home. While Shackleton and the rescue crew were celebrating their successful landing, there were 22 men waiting back on Elephant Island. They had made a rudimentary dwelling of sorts by turning the other two lifeboats upside down over a four-foot wall of stacked rocks. There was enough room for all of them inside, and leftover wooden planks had been laid out over the foundations where the boats met the rock in a primitive version of bunk beds. 
Their door was made of old blankets that flapped in the wind. Their only light came from blubber oil lamps they had fashioned from old tins with surgical bandages for wicks. Their island was windy almost constantly, and it would whistle through the cracks between the stones, causing the flames from the lamps to flicker throughout the night. It was a hard life on the island. They had no idea how Shackleton and the others were faring, or even if they were still alive. The most optimistic of them predicted they would be rescued no more than a month after Shackleton shoved off from shore in the Caird. They believed that a rescue ship would get to them before the pack ice surrounded the island, cementing them away from any hope of rescue. They did not want to spend a third winter in Antarctica. But the days passed slowly, and that month became two months, and the days grew shorter. Some of those left behind were as healthy as they could be in body and mind under the circumstances. Others were not faring so well. To recap, Rickinson, the engineer, was still recovering from the heart attack he'd had the moment they landed. Hudson, the navigator, was still holed up in the hut, suffering from a bad abscess and a bout of depression. Greenstreet, the first officer, was dealing with the frostbite that had nearly crippled his feet. And Blackborough, our stowaway, had just had all the toes on his left foot amputated because the frostbite he had suffered had caused gangrene to set in. So things could be better, but they made the most of it. The one thing this crew never lost for long was its sense of humor and camaraderie. Sure, sometimes the cannibal jokes would go too far, and they could be moody, all the idiosyncrasies of the varying personalities being crammed together in a survival situation for 16 months. If I had no privacy and had to literally be crammed up to the same couple dozen people for that long with no escape, I'd probably get a little moody too, sometimes. Two months had passed since Shackleton had left, and they went about their days without speaking their true fears about why he hadn't returned. Their conversation now was mostly about food, and about who had won the war back home. They had no idea just how absolutely horrendous World War I had become. But by June, the pack ice had creeped in and surrounded the island. It stretched out as far as they could see, and their horizon was once again nothing but ice. To free their minds of their troubles, on June 22nd, Midwinter's Day, they had a feast. Well, as much of a feast as they could. They had been surviving on seal and penguin meat, but they still had some of their original rations with them. The feast consisted entirely of sledging rations. It still wasn't much, but it was a break from seals and penguins. Afterwards, they celebrated inside the hut, and some of them put on a show for the others, singing songs while Hussey played his banjo, the only instrument they had heard since they'd left home. At the end of the night, they toasted to the sun's return and to the boss and the crew of the cared. They drank a concoction they had invented and very appropriately named Gut Rot 1916. It was made of water, ginger, sugar, and methylated alcohol, or denatured alcohol, that they used as fuel for the stove. It made most of them fairly ill. The celebration gave a much-needed boost to all their moods, but the jubilation faded as the day continued to wear on. They coped mentally as best they could, but the monotony and boredom of the stretched-out days were weighing on them. Macklin, one of the surgeons, wrote in his diary, quote, 
My mind is becoming terribly blank. I'd lie for hours without even so much as thinking in a sort of vacuous state." Unquote. That sounds like they were struggling with some pretty serious mental strain. Everyone who had a diary wrote about the waiting, and the entries gradually became less optimistic. They all ended up agreeing that they wouldn't start really panicking until mid-August, four months after Shackleton had left them. That gave Shackleton and the crew of the Caird a couple extra months to fulfill their promise of bringing rescue, and it helped them cope with the fact that they had really been hoping a ship would have arrived a month ago. Gradually, their supplies began to run out, item by item. First, their supply of nuts. Then the much-loved powdered milk that they had enjoyed as a heated drink at the end of each day. But none of these losses compared with the loss of their most beloved item, tobacco. They didn't all run out at the same time. Some of them did not ration their allotment because they believed rescue was on its way, so they smoked at their normal rate and ran out quickly. Others rationed their smoking and stretched it out into smaller and smaller intervals, using up their precious tobacco with increasing reverence and anxiety. One man, Jack Wordy, the expedition's geologist, was the most frugal among them with his tobacco rations. The others who had exhausted their supply hounded him all the time, begging for just one pipeful, half a pipeful, a quarter pipeful, or even just one puff. Wordy was always collecting interesting looking rocks, because that's what geologists like to do, and the others would scour the island for the most interesting pebbles and stones they could, offering them to Wordy for a puff of his pipe. I love that they plied the geologist with rocks for his tobacco. For one, it's funny in a charming sort of way, and two, it shows just how much they treasured the smallest comforts that offered any normalcy of home to these lost explorers. Once Wordy's supply ran out, they experienced a period of what can only be described as mourning for the lost tobacco. Its loss made them feel just another step further from home. To compensate, some of them began desperately looking for tobacco substitutes they tried picking lichen off of rocks and smoking that. They tried dried seaweed. Then McLeod, one of the sailors, had the idea to remove the Senegrass insulation from his boots and smoke that. This caught on, but the taste was fairly foul. They took all their tobacco pipes and boiled them in a pot of hot water with the insulation from their boots, hoping this would add some tobacco flavor. It did not. The depletion of their tobacco stores only served to heighten the tension they were all feeling toward one another, making them increasingly irritable and annoyed at things they normally would dismiss. In his journal, Hurley the photographer wrote about how irked they had become about people snoring at night. The problem was brought up to Wilde, the person Shackleton had left in charge, and he came up with a particularly clever solution to this. Hurley wrote, quote, Wilde has devised an ingenious arrangement for the cure of chronic snorers. Lees, who continuously disturbs our peaceful slumbers by his habitual trumpeting, was the first offender for the experiment. A slip noose is attached to his arm, which is led by a series of eyelets across the bunks to Wilde's vicinity. As the various sleepers are disturbed, they vigorously haul on the line, as much as one might do to stop a taxi. It might do the latter, but Lee's is incorrigible, scarcely heeding our signals. It has been suggested that the noose be tied around his neck, 
I'm sure many would exert their full manpower, unquote. So they had invented a rudimentary Rube Goldberg machine to deal with the snoring in the hut. Just another thing highlighting the creativity and cleverness of this crew. One positive change of events was the weather through July was less windy than it had previously been, and there were less pieces of rock and ice hurtling through the air. Previously, they could barely stand upright because the wind outside the hut during storms was so strong. They could now move about freely, and some of them enjoyed daily walks where they would meander to the highest point and scan the dark horizon for ships. But one thing that was a constant issue was sanitation. In July, the floor of their hut flooded. At first, they weren't sure where all the water was coming from, but they finally figured out it was caused by the runoff trickling from the glaciers that was seeping in through the holes in the rocky foundation. What made things worse was that the water had picked up the penguin guano from the cliffs and carried it down into the hut. So it was a mix of cold water, dirt, and penguin feces. To deal with it, they made a drain through one of the sidewalls, but so much water was accumulating that they ended up having to dig a hole about two feet deep at the lowest point in the hut. They would then bail out water from there. The first time they did this, they bailed out over 70 gallons, or 265 liters, of watery penguin feces. They had to remain vigilant and bail constantly when the weather was wet, and apparently, penguin guano smells pretty bad. They started calling the hut the sty because it had become so dirty over the past few months. Bits of food that had been dropped and lost on the floor were now rotting, adding to the stench of the penguin guano. The squalor only fueled their discontentment, and as the first month turned into two, then three, then four, they began to let doubt creep in. If Shackleton didn't show up with a relief ship, they had two options. The first was to starve. The second was to try and outfit one of the leftover boats and sail with yet another small crew to Deception Island, 216 miles, or roughly 350 kilometers away. The journey would be one through rough water, and navigating against the current would be next to impossible but there were stores left there for marooned sailors due to the high number of shipwrecks that occurred in the area. There was not much of a chance that, if they had to resort to a rescue mission this way, that they would survive. The idea of traveling to South Georgia like Shackleton had done was also next to impossible, but the odds were better than making it to Deception Island, even though it was much closer. But anything was a better prospect than Elephant Island, this rock in the middle of nowhere. They had been the first humans in history to actually land there. To this day, the population of Elephant Island is zero. Sometimes there are seasonal teams of researchers who visit in the summer season, but no one lives there year-round. It's just too hostile and inhospitable a place for human occupation. As the weather wore on, it became apparent that the surgeons needed to perform yet another surgery, though not as serious a one as the amputation of Blackborough's toes. This time, they had to drain the abscess on the buttock of Hudson. It had started growing months earlier on their boat journey from the ice of Patience Camp to Elephant Island, and was now the size of a football. It was huge now, and there was no avoiding dealing with it. The surgeons had waited to operate due to the fear of infection in such an unsanitary place, 
but Hudson was in so much pain that something had to be done. When the surgeons cut it open without the aid of any anesthetic, two pints of a disgustingly foul-smelling liquid oozed out. But the surgery was a success, and no infection was reported to have resulted from the procedure. And everyone was still, somehow, alive. And they continued on, boiling and eating seaweed as their stores dwindled, walking up to the highest point of the bluff, scanning for ships, talking about food, and a repetitive routine. They wrote in their diaries of the ice, of the weather, of how a ship never came, of the boredom, of their dwindling hopelessness. And on August 19th, four months after they had landed on Elephant Island, Ordelese wrote, quote, There is no good in deceiving ourselves any longer. I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to the History Cash podcast. You have many thousands of podcasts to choose from, and I am massively appreciative that you've chosen to listen to mine. I also want to thank everyone who has followed the show and taken the time to write a review. It has definitely helped to make the show more visible. If you're interested in further supporting the show, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You'll get access to a members-only feed, a shout-out on the show, free stickers, and access to any future members-only bonus episodes I do. I do this podcast because I want to make history accessible to everyone and bring you the stories of those that have come before us to life in a way you may not have experienced in history class. A history podcast as intensively researched as this one takes a colossal amount of time and energy to produce, especially since I'm doing it all on my own. And knowing you're out there listening makes me feel like it's all worth it. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Now, back to the show. When Shackleton and the others landed on the beach after their harrowing 16-day boat journey, they felt the full weight of the physical and emotional toil they had just been through. They were so weak that even pulling their boat on shore, something that they would have had minimal trouble doing under normal circumstances, was too colossal a task, and they had to rest, eat, and recuperate halfway through before they were able to finish. About 30 meters up the beach, they spotted a shallow cave, and dragged their sleeping bags and their food inside. It was a shallow cave, maybe 12 feet deep, but huge icicles, 15 feet high, formed from glacier runoff, covered the front of the cave, forming a wall of ice that protected them from the wind outside. That night, Shackleton woke from a nightmare. He dreamed that a giant wave was careening toward them, and he awoke as he was shouting a warning to the others, another manifestation of the strain they were all feeling. In the morning, they assessed the situation. They were on the south side of South Georgia. The whaling station was in Stromness Bay, and they knew there would be people there, and if they had any chance of recruiting a rescue ship willing to brave the pack ice that was now surrounding the rest of the crew stranded on Elephant Island, that's where they would find it. They had two options to get to the whaling station. One, they could get back in the Caird, which was now damaged and rudderless, and had lost its sea anchor. They could try to, once again, chance it on the rough waters, follow the coast around the western tip of the island for about 130 miles, 
or roughly 209 kilometers, until reaching Stromness Bay. This was, in a damaged boat, in these waters, impossible. Option two, they could trek straight across the island, something no one had ever done before, not because there was no interest in it, but because everyone generally agreed it could not be done. The 29 miles, or 46 kilometers, as the crow flies to Stromness Bay were riddled with peaks and glaciers and ridges that sawtoothed the island and hid an untold number of perilous places ready to swallow anyone foolish enough to attempt a crossing. This, too, was impossible. But they would do it anyway. When Shackleton told the others of his decision to go overland, they all accepted it, happy not to be risking their lives on another boat journey. Going overland was risky, but it was probably less risky than taking to the damaged boat. Only three of them would go on the overland trek. Shackleton would go and take Worsley, his navigator, and Crean, his second officer. McNish the carpenter would stay behind. The journey had taken its toll on him, and he probably wouldn't have been able to survive it. Vincent, the trawlerman, was still in a stupor and had not been interacting with the others. He had stopped helping altogether and would also be left behind. McCarthy was still able and was in good spirits, but Shackleton was determined to make speed a priority, so the fewer going on the trip, the better. Besides, someone would have to stay around and look after the other two being left behind. Before they could set out on foot, they would have to sail the Caird to a better campsite in order to leave the three being left behind in the best conditions possible. It would be two days before they were strong enough to make the journey. They slept and ate and slept and ate, and after some rest had revived their weary muscles and minds, they launched back into the sea on the Caird. Strangely, before they left, their ship's rudder, which had been lost in the storm, washed up right into the surf on the beach where they were. It was an incredibly lucky happenstance. Sailing to a better camping spot would be a relatively easy journey, and they found a place only six miles, or roughly nine kilometers, up the coast. They named their site Peggotty Camp, after the poor but honest family in Charles Dickens' David Copperfield. It was a beach with a slight incline made of pebbles and sand. There were so many elephant seals in the area, they didn't even try to count them. It would be a good place to leave the three men behind. There was plenty of food for them to wait indefinitely. For a shelter, they did what their companions on Elephant Island had done. They turned their boat over and rested it on a stone foundation they made with the rocks that were surrounding the beach. The sleeping bags were hauled inside, and it was an adequate escape from the wind and the hail. To help Shackleton, Crean, and Worsley on their journey, McNish the carpenter took nails from the boat and hammered them through their boots, fashioning crampons for them. This would prove to be an extremely important addition, as the steep slopes they would be trekking over are precarious even with the best alpine equipment available today. They were in a hurry, knowing the 22 crew members left stranded back on Elephant Island were waiting for them, counting on them to bring them home. They would be traveling light, believing that marching unencumbered without too many supplies would make the trip easier and faster. It would also force them to push themselves, as resting would mean burning through their rations. No one would even be taking a sleeping bag. They would go with three days of rations, a small stove with enough fuel to cook six meals, one pot for cooking, a small box of matches, half empty, two compasses, 
50 feet of rope that they would tie around one another in case someone fell into a precipice, and a carpenter's ads that they were planning on using as an ice axe. I've been a rock climber for the last 19 years. I've ice climbed, I've climbed on nearly every kind of rock I can think of, and even worked in the climbing industry professionally for a few years back when I was actually fit. If someone, anyone, told me that they were going to trek for 30 miles over terrain like this with nails hammered through their boots, virtually no supplies, and an ads for an ice axe, I would probably try and have them committed. I cannot stress how dangerous this idea was, how under-equipped and inexperienced for this journey the three of them were. It makes my palms sweat just thinking about how unprepared they were in every way. But that's how Shackleton rolled, and they really had no other choice. It was go big and risk everything, or don't, and die anyway. They had to wait three days before they began their journey, having to wait out the weather. Shackleton was edgy and itching to move. They were tantalizingly close to civilization now, only miles from it, and he was full of anticipation. Before they left, Shackleton gave a note to McNish, leaving him in charge of the party. This is surprising, since if you remember, Shackleton would deny McNish the honor of the Polar Medal later. I know I keep bringing that up, but it's because without McNish, it's extremely unlikely any of them would have made it home, and I just can't get over it. His upgrades to the Caird are the only reason they survived the boat journey, and the crampons he just made for them probably saved their lives too. The note Shackleton gave to McNish was dated May 18th, 1916, and said, quote, Sir, I am about to try and reach Husvik on the east coast of this island for relief of our party. I am leaving you in charge of the party consisting of Vincent, McCarthy, and yourself. You will remain here until relief arrives. You have ample seal food, which you can supplement with birds and fish according to your skill. You are left with a double-barreled gun, 50 cartridges, and other rations. You also have all the necessary equipment to support life for an indefinite period in the event of my non-return. You had better, after winter is over, try and sail around to the east coast. The course I am making towards Husvik is east magnetic. I trust to have you relieved in a few days. Yours faithfully, E.H. Shackleton." Unquote. This note seems much more optimistic than his last that he gave to Wilde as they left Elephant Island. We can see here that his confidence, which he had been questioning on the boat journey, was much revived now. He was determined to succeed. The night before they left, Shackleton couldn't sleep. He kept going outside to check the weather. It was slowly clearing, hinting that the morning would be just fair enough to allow them to set out. At 2 a.m., the sky finally cleared, and the moon shone down on the white peaks, affording a blue glow bright enough to see by. He couldn't wait any longer. He woke everyone up and declared it was time to start moving. A morning ration of hoosh was prepared, and after it was finished, they all shook hands, and McCarthy, McNish, and Vincent watched as the outlines of Crean, Worsley, and Shackleton, bathed in the brilliant blue-gray of moonlight, disappeared over the snowy ridge and into the unexplored interior of South Georgia. Our history, though short, is wrought with events that transform our existence. Locked away and hidden within sacred vaults exists a treasure trove of events, 
inventions, and stoic occurrences hoping to shine once more. These gems have many facets. Some shine like beacons of hope and others are dim with warnings of future transgressions. Sometimes history is easily accessible and this is the history that we know by teachings. But what of the history that we were never taught? Sometimes we must act as thieves to steal the locked treasures of history and find out what secrets lie beneath. Join us as we pick the locks, open the hidden artifacts, and bring these treasures back from whence they came. Only on Ransack History, presented by Sounded Heart. It was just after 3 a.m., and their legs were burning. They were using muscles they hadn't engaged to any great extent since their trek across to Patience Camp close to a year ago. The snow beneath them was soft, and they sank into it, making the way up even more strenuous. They reached the top of the first ridge at 2,500 feet, or 762 meters. All three were thankful when the ridge leveled out, and they could catch their breath as they looked over the rugged landscape. Looking down on the far side of a large glacier, they saw the wreckage of ships peppered along the coastline, a grim reminder of the ill-fated ships and crews that had not survived the same waters they had been tossed in mere days earlier. Worsley pulled out his chart of South Georgia, although it wouldn't be of much use. All there was on the map was a traced outline of the coast, and even that was incomplete. The center of the map was just a blank space, no one yet knowing what lie within, as no one had set foot in the interior in 1916. They would be the first in history to do so. Shackleton described this, quote, The bright moonlight showed us that the interior was broken tremendously. High peaks, impassable cliffs, steep snow slopes, and sharply descending glaciers were prominent features in all directions with stretches of snow plain overlaying the ice sheet of the interior." Unquote. They estimated they had made it about five miles, and they stared out at the great expanse, but it was foggy, the mists only thinning and receding lower in the valley below them. They reasoned that the ice sheet of the interior they were seeing was in fact a lake in the distance, icy and vast, though they couldn't see exactly where it ended due to the unrelenting fog. They marched toward it, enjoying the easier trek down the slope, excited at their good luck, because they believed that by hiking across the frozen water, they would enjoy a level trail, at least for as long as the lake meandered through the mountains. But, when the fog lifted in the distance after about seven miles total of hiking and avoiding the crevasses that grew continually wider and deeper, they realized they were not on a mountain, but a huge glacier and the lake below them didn't empty into the mountains, but dropped right off into the sea. There was no clear path off of the lake back onto any path that could take them in the right direction. So they had to turn around and go right back up to the ridge they had descended from in the first place. It cost them a valuable two hours of time and their precious energy. They would have been better off if they had brought more supplies and sleeping bags and reconnoitered their way through the uncharted territory. They couldn't tell where the paths they were choosing led, and they were going to have to guess correctly if they didn't want to be caught in a blizzard or run out of stores before they hit civilization. Shackleton was, once again, choosing speed over common sense. Once back at the top of the ridge, they spied a series of four peaks, and Worsley suggested they head between the first and second, 
as it seemed to be the closest and most accessible path. They stopped for a short meal to refuel and left their position to head for the peaks. At one point, Shackleton noted that they had, just in time, avoided a precipice so vast it could have swallowed an army. Shackleton was in the lead and so had the arduous task of breaking trail for the others. Creating a trail in unbroken snow takes a lot of energy and it can be exhausting, but Shackleton wanted to be in the lead as the landscape could be hiding any number of secret perils covered in a soft layer of newly fallen snow, giving dangerous pockets of void the illusion of solid ground. They were still tied to one another with the rope. This did two things. First, if one of them were to fall, the other two could hold tight, hopefully not upending themselves into whatever slope or precipice the other person had fallen inside of. And two, if the leader were to veer away from walking in a straight line, the person in the rear could holler out a correction of direction, making sure they didn't meander from taking the most efficient course. The way was not easy, and they were often climbing and descending dicey slopes and steep faces, often having to chop footholds into the hard ice with their carpenter's ads, then hope the nails in their boots bit into the ice enough to hold their weight. After about three hours of climbing this way, they reached the top of another peak. Traversing a landscape like this is difficult, and without a map or GPS system, it is extremely easy to become lost or head into the direction of something that looks promising, only to find it's a dead end after you get there. And that's what happened to them, again, at the top of this peak. Past the summit, there was no way down, as they had hoped there would be, at least not one they could survive. It was a sheer drop-off, 1,500 feet, or 457 meters down. To their left was a line of glaciers with sides that dropped off sharply into the sea. To their right was nothing but a series of cliff faces separated by crevices that were totally impassable. At the bottom of the sheer drop-off in front of them appeared to be a slope about eight miles long. It would be their only way forward. But to get to it, they now had to descend the same harrowing climb they had just spent the last three hours ascending. For the second time that day, they had to retrace their steps, costing themselves time and energy. After a few more hours, they made it to the next peak, only to find themselves in the same situation, with a steep drop before them and nothing to the left or the right. They were stuck for a third time. But this time, it was late afternoon, and when they looked behind them, they could see thick fog beginning to roll in. They were up about 4,500 feet this time. That's 1,371 meters. If they couldn't get to a lower elevation before nightfall, when the temperature at this altitude would probably drop well below zero, they would freeze to death. They hadn't brought anything to make a shelter with, didn't even have sleeping bags, so they would have nothing to protect them from the elements. The top of the ridge was sharp, with enough room for only one of them to peer down at a time. They were weak now. They had had to stop about every 20 minutes to rest, sprawl their limbs akimbo, and gulp air until their bodies were willing to move again. And they needed to move quickly. The night and the fog were gaining on them. Shackleton stepped over the tip of the ridge and began hacking footholds into the ice for them to make their descent. In a situation like this, any wrong move could have been his last. 
If he had slipped here or one of those footholds had proven too shallow, he could have plummeted and taken the other two men tied to him with him. After about 30 minutes of doing this, it was apparent that to continue to descend the cliff this way, hacked out foothold by hacked out foothold would take hours. And they didn't have hours. And now it was too late to turn back. Shackleton hacked out a ledge in the ice for the other two and they joined him on it, looking down at the route below. It was not quite a sheer drop, but it was far too steep to walk down. They couldn't see exactly what was at the bottom because that had been covered in a thick fog. But they couldn't go back up and they didn't have time to carefully climb their way down. So Shackleton decided they would slide and just hope that at the bottom of this cliff, there would be a gentle slope to slow their speed and not another sheer cliff face, precipice, or crevasse to swallow them whole. Worsley and Crean were genuinely hoping Shackleton was joking when he suggested they grab onto one another, forming a human toboggan and slide down to whatever could be there. But he wasn't joking. They argued with him for a moment, something Shackleton hated. He wanted to be obeyed without question, always, but he was asking a lot of them right now. The other two kept asking, what if they hit a rock? What if the slope didn't level off? What if they slid into nothingness? Getting aggravated, Shackleton replied that there was literally no alternative, and the other two had to reluctantly agree. They coiled the rope underneath them to form a mat, Worsley locked his legs around Shackleton's waist and his arms around Shackleton's neck, and Crean did the same to him. Then, without hesitation, unless they rethink what they were about to do, Shackleton shoved off and they hurtled at incredible speed down the slope. They all screamed. They couldn't help it. And I know this was a dangerous thing they were doing, but it's kind of funny to imagine three guys clutched sitting on a bunch of rope, careening and screaming down a nearly sheer drop-off in the middle of this unexplored island. After what felt like a long time, their speed began to slow and they leveled off, crashing into a snowbank. They were a little bruised, but they were alive. And looking up at the cliff they had just slid down, they all began laughing uncontrollably at the ridiculousness of what they had just accomplished and elated at the feeling of having survived it. Above them, they saw the fog overtake the peak where they had just been, relieved that they had beaten it. They stopped for a few minutes to eat some rations, then headed out once again. The moon was full and it cast an illuminating blue glow over the snow, making the island sparkle with an otherworldly iridescence that helped light their way. The light from the moon made the shadows of the crevasses much easier to see, their shadows giving them away. They continued on, wary. They rested for a few minutes at midnight. They were going on hour 20 of their trek and exhaustion was catching up to them. They had been routinely studying Worsley's incomplete chart of the island, and that night, as they peered down the valley, they saw several familiar landmarks which led them to believe they were near their goal. They joyously made their way toward familiarity, but once there, they realized they had only been seeing what they had wanted to see. Everything they recognized had been an illusion, their minds making rocks and ridges out to be landmarks that would have signaled they were close to their goal. 
So for the third time, they frustratingly retrace their steps, losing more time and more energy. A few hours after their retreat, they had to rest. Their bodies simply were too tired to keep moving. They found a sheltered area behind a rocky outcropping and clung to one another for warmth. Crean and Worsley fell asleep almost immediately. As Shackleton began to nod off, he realized with a jolt that falling asleep would probably mean death. If they let their guard down and allowed themselves the sleep this level of exhaustion demanded, it was very unlikely that they would ever wake up again. The cold would claim them in their sleep like it had so many other exhausted polar explorers. Shackleton forced himself to rise, then woke the others. They had only been sleeping for five minutes, but he told them it had been a half hour, hoping that would help convince them into thinking they could move again. Their limbs were stiff and aching, but they had to move on. About 6 a.m., they pushed their way through a thin pass. The land in front of them was unhindered for once from the thick fog. Before them, in the distance, they thought the hills resembled those of Stromness Bay, which would mean the whaling station they were searching for would be just on the other side of one more set of peaks. But they were not getting their hopes up. Their minds had been in a state of near delirium, and they couldn't trust what they were seeing anymore. Worsley said aloud that it was too good to be true. It was time for another meal, and while Crean and Worsley were setting up the small stove, Shackleton walked to the top of the ridge to try and work out the next leg of their journey. As he stared at the hills in the distance, he thought he heard the sound of a steam whistle. But it was faint, and he wasn't certain that it wasn't just his mind letting him hear what he wanted to hear. But it was odd enough that he returned to the others and told them. It was 6.30 when he thought he heard it, which was when the whalers would have been awakened by the morning steam whistle signaling the beginning of their day. If Shackleton had been correct about the whistle, then they would hear a second one at exactly 7 a.m. signaling the whalers to begin their day's work. They waited in hopeful anticipation for the whistle at 7 a.m. It was impossible for them not to get their hopes up. It would signal that their journey, nearly two years in the making since they had left the docks of England, was almost at an end. It would mean civilization was right over the next rise of hills, and that at last they could know absolutely that they would get to go home again. 645, 650, 655. They were electrified with anticipation thinking, please, 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 let that whistle sound out. 6.56, 6.57, They were holding their breath so as not to hinder any sound from behind the hills. 6.59, 7. It was real. The sound rang through their bodies and filled them with a sense of relief that was so palpable, it was almost painful in how sweet it was. It was the first sound of civilization they had heard since they had left that same island in December of 1914. They rejoiced at the thought that they just might live through this after all.
They were exhausted, but they had been invigorated by having their goal in sight. They began moving. The way was not easy. They had many thousands of feet of crevasses and ridges to overcome. This was slow working. They would lower Shackleton down with ropes as he chopped footholds for the other two, then they would follow. They made their way like this all the way until they finally climbed to the top of the last ridge overlooking Husvik, the whaling station in Stromness Bay. They saw a whaling ship entering the bay and a sailing vessel resting in the wharf. Little shapes were moving around the station, people fast at work, unaware of the three lost explorers gazing down from the ridge. The three of them stared in silence, each engrossed in their own thoughts, until Shackleton said aloud, Let's go down. The ridge was a steep drop-off, and they had to walk along the top for some time before they spotted a narrow ravine, where water would trickle from the snowy runoff of the ridges in the summers. It was the only way down they had found, so they followed it, watching their footing so as not to slip and tumble their way down to the bottom. The ravine began to get steeper, and water was flowing down it in a stream that continued to gain force. There was no way out of the ravine, so they had to keep following it. After an hour, they were knee-deep in icy water, but their pace was steady. They had to stop when the stream ended suddenly and turned into a waterfall. They peered over the edge. It was a 25-foot drop-down. There was no going back. The way back up was too wet and steep. There was no climbing out as the sides of the ravine were impossible to climb. They had to go down. They tied their rope to a boulder. Then Shackleton and Worsley lowered Crean down on the end of the rope. He made it down the waterfall, choking on the water. Worsley climbed down after, then Shackleton. Their rope was irrecoverable, but that no longer mattered. They were soaked, cold, and weary, but they only had a mile to go. They knew their appearance was severe. Their hair was shoulder-length and matted. Their beards were unshaven and full of snow and snot. Their skin was dirty, and not a one of them could remember the last time they had bathed. The way Shackleton writes of it, they were almost too embarrassed of their appearances to enjoy the tremendous feat they had just accomplished. It would not be until 1955 that anyone would try to cross the interior of South Georgia again. It would finally be accomplished by a British service team that had with them everything they needed for the trek. The leader of the party, Duncan Carse, would later remark how incredible it was that Shackleton and his companions had done the same difficult trek with nothing but 50 feet of rope and a carpenter's ads. The first people to see them as they staggered from the mountains were two small boys playing on the skirts of the station. Shackleton greeted them politely and asked them where the manager's house was. The young boys stared at these horrendous-looking strangers that had just appeared out of the wilderness, then screamed and ran away as fast as they could. The next person they saw was an old man who stared at them in wonder, then also hurried away before they could offer a greeting. This was not shaping up to be the reception they had hoped for. Finally, they met Matthias Anderson, the new foreman of Stromness. He hadn't met Shackleton before the endurance made its way to sea, but he had heard of him and knew the station had been their last stop before they had disappeared. Everyone agreed Shackleton and his crew must have gone down in the Weddell Sea somewhere. No one believed they were still alive. 
When Shackleton greeted Matthias, he explained that they had lost their ship and come over the island. Over the island, Matthias repeated, not believing that was possible. But where else could they have come from? Shackleton was told that the previous manager had been replaced by a man named Thorolf Sorrel, a man he knew. Shackleton asked to see him, and Matthias led him to Sorrel's house. By now, everyone was interested in who these three strange men were who had just stumbled from the unknown, and their journey to Sorrel's house was lined with curious onlookers, happy to have an excuse to stop working for a moment. When Sorrel opened the door, he did not recognize Shackleton, who, the last time they had met, had been dressed like a knighted English gentleman. So he did not recognize this scraggly, foul-smelling stranger at his door. My name is Shackleton, said Shackleton. And at this, Sorrel finally understood who this was in front of him. There are two different accounts of what happened next. Shackleton wrote that Sorrel invited them in then and offered them every hospitality, which he did. But other accounts say that when Sorrel finally recognized Shackleton, he turned away and wept. Either way, they were given everything they needed. Before asking for anything, Shackleton inquired about the war. The day they had been given the go-ahead to leave on the expedition was the day World War I had started. The state of the war was a constant talking point for the explorers during their journey, but none of them could have guessed how immensely horrific World War I had become. Shackleton didn't even consider the possibility that it hadn't yet ended. He asked Sorrel, Tell me, when was the war over? Sorrel simply replied, The war is not over. Millions are being killed. Europe is mad. The world is mad. This was not the first piece of news from home they were hoping for, and they wondered about their families and their friends at home, and wondered how many of them were still alive. While Shackleton and the others were washing up, no doubt appreciating the soap and hot water in a way most of us could not understand, Sorrel ordered a whaling vessel to be sent to where McNish, Vincent, and McCarthy had been left behind. Worsley went with the ship to rescue the other three. When he greeted them back at Peggotty Camp, they were delighted to hear that Shackleton and the others had made it across the island. Then they inquired as to why no one from Shackleton's party had come with the whalers to rescue them. Worsley looked at his three companions, these men he had seen every single day since December of 1914, and realized they didn't recognize him. He was too clean, his hair was cut, and his beard was gone. Finally recognizing him for who he was, they all realized how emaciated and dirty they had all become mere shells of their former selves. The other three were taken back to the whaling station and afforded the same hospitalities. Shackleton wrote they were too comfortable to sleep, having grown unaccustomed to the softness of a real bed. Then came the frustrating attempt at trying to secure a boat that was up for rescuing the 22 other crew members that were still stranded on Elephant Island, no doubt thinking that by now they had been lost to the sea in the Caird. In the meantime, they were all engrossed in news of the war. They wanted all the information they could get, not wanting to believe any of what they were hearing. Shackleton, too, was now told that the Aurora, the ship that had been tasked with carrying their supplies to the other side of Antarctica, had been blown off course. And it would be some time before Shackleton knew of the whole plight the crew of the Aurora had faced. 
how some of them had been blown to sea, and how some were still stranded on the opposite side of the continent, and how three of them had been killed on the journey. I explained the disaster of the Aurora in detail in the first episode in this series. It was not a happy ending. Every time Shackleton secured a rescue ship, it would not be able to penetrate the pack ice that now surrounded Elephant Island. It would be four months with four different ships attempting a rescue, but the ice and the cross seas kept them from succeeding. All the while, those stranded on Elephant Island had no idea Shackleton and the others were trying to get to them. Finally, Shackleton secured a boat called the Yelcho that the Chilean government donated to the cause of the rescue. The Yelcho was a tugboat, and Shackleton had to promise he would not take it through the pack ice as it was not equipped for the job. He agreed, and on August 30th, 1916, Shackleton, in the bow of the Yelcho, spotted Elephant Island once again. And this time, it looked like there just may be a way through. It was just like any other day for the 22 men living on an unlivable island. Wild, the one Shackleton had left in charge, had every day for the last four months and six days used his personable nature and humor to keep up the spirits of everyone else. It was difficult as no one believed anymore that rescue was coming. It had simply been too long. They still meandered up the hill to check the horizon for ships, but it was done more in ritual than in anticipation of rescue. They spent that day digging snow away from the hut while the cook prepared a meal of seal hoosh. Marston, the ship's artist, still had some art supplies left. The light afforded by this time of day was the best it would get, so he crept out onto the bluff to make some sketches. As he peered out onto the horizon, he saw something that made his heart drop to his stomach with the enormity of what it meant. It was a ship, and it was in range of the island. He ran as fast as his underfed body could take him, and breathlessly said to the others, hadn't we better send up some smoke signals? They all knew what this meant, and they scrambled over each other, spilling their hoosh and upending themselves. They all tried pushing through the door at once, and the front wall of the hut crumbled in the chaos. Some of them didn't even put their boots on, they just ran out onto the beach barefoot. James the physicist put his on the wrong feet in his rush to get outside. And there it was, not a false alarm, but a ship a mile off the coast. Macklin ran to the bluff and began waving his coat, signaling the boat. But this was unnecessary. Those on board had already seen them. But the men on shore couldn't be certain. Hurley grabbed all the fuel he could find, poured blubber oil over all of it, then topped it with two gallons of paraffin. This exploded as soon as he lit it, and it was not the smoke signal he had been hoping for. But it was a pretty big raging fire. The ship was too large to hit shore, so it stopped within a few hundred meters, and a rowboat was lowered. Four figures climbed into it, and when one of them was recognized as Shackleton, a roar of cheer went up among the crew. They were saved. They were going home. When the boat neared the beach, Shackleton yelled out to Wild, Are you all well? Wild replied, smiling, All safe all well. 
Shackleton threw cigarettes and tobacco onto the beach before the small boat landed, and the crew snatched them up greedily and began to smoke them. They had grown tired of smoking seaweed and the senegrass from their boots. After about an hour, they were all safely aboard the Yelcho. They were given food, the kinds of food they had waited so long for. But when you put a large helping of rich food into a body that has been eating mostly seal meat and steadily ingesting a low number of calories, it makes for some pretty heinous reactions. But that didn't matter, because there would be more food at home, spread out on the tables of their loved ones, warm with the smells and the energy of home. And they would go home, every last one of them. They would trade the ice for green hills, their wooden planks for real beds, and Clark would get his Devonshire dumpling with cream. James would get his syrup pudding McElroy would get his marmalade, Macklin his scrambled eggs on toast, Bakewell his baked pork and beans, and Blackborough, the former stowaway, would finally get his plain bread with butter. Everyone in the Weddell Sea Party survived, and that is so incredible that it's almost impossible. So what became of them after they made it home? Most of them enlisted and joined the British Armed Forces in World War I. Here is what I found about their lives after the expedition. McCarthy, the cheerful sailor that had journeyed with Shackleton to South Georgia, joined the Armed Forces and was killed at his gun in action. He was 28 years old. McCarthy Island, just off the coast from the spot where the Caird landed in South Georgia, was named in his honor in 1951 by the South Georgia Survey. The two physicians, McElroy and Macklin, served in France and Italy. McElroy was wounded. Macklin was awarded the Military Cross for bravery, tending the wounded under fire. Both survived, Macklin to age 78 and McElroy to 89. Cheatham, the third officer, was drowned when the ship he was serving on was torpedoed only a few weeks before the war ended. He was 52 and had lost one of his sons to the war before he returned home. Hussey, the banjo player, served in World War I, becoming a captain. After that, he went on another Antarctic expedition. He just couldn't stay away from the southern sky. When he returned, he became a surgeon and served in World War II as well. He died at age 72. And that banjo of his is still in the National Maritime Museum in London, so you can see it today. It's valued at 150,000 pounds. That's about 194,000 US dollars. Wordy, the geologist, enlisted as well and survived the war, though he was badly wounded. He was awarded honorary doctorates from the University of Glasgow and the University of Hull. He was even president of the Royal Geological Society for a few years. He died at age 73. Clark the biologist was a minesweeper, then a professional cricket player for a while. He got his doctorate and worked for the Fishery Board of Scotland. He died at 68. Hudson fought in World War I for the Royal Navy and worked as a Royal Navy Reserve Commodore in World War II. 
He was killed in 1942 when his ship was torpedoed. He was 55 years old. Green Street served on a barge in the Tigris, fought again in World War II, then worked in insurance until his death at age 90. Green the cook joined the Royal Navy too after returning home and made the Navy a lifelong career. He died at age 85. Howe joined the Navy as well, and I couldn't find much else on him, but I know he died in London at age 86. Bakewell, the only American on the expedition, worked in the railway business for a while, then bought a farm in Michigan. He is buried in the Upper Peninsula. He lived to be 81. McLeod continued to explore the Antarctic, going on another expedition. After that, he moved to Canada, working as a fisherman. He died in Ontario at age 87. Vincent served in World War I, survived, moved to Grimsby, had five sons and four daughters, served in the Royal Naval Reserve during World War II, and died of pneumonia at age 57. Rickinson became an engineer lieutenant, fought in both world wars before being lost to lung cancer at age 61. Kerr joined the Navy and fought in World War I. He would also go on another Antarctic expedition. He worked in wholesale for the rest of his working life until his death at 72. Ordelis fought on the Western Front. He joined the Royal Flying Corps and became a pioneer in convincing the military that parachutes were useful. A parachute division was formed by the RFC and put Ordelis in command. He lived in Japan until the start of World War II, then moved to New Zealand. He wrote columns for a newspaper, though there were rumors he was a British spy. He lived until the age of 81. James joined the Royal Engineers and excelled, surviving the war. He worked as a professor for the University of Cape Town until he died of cardiovascular disease at 73. Holness joined the Royal Navy during World War I and had an active career in the military until he was tragically washed overboard while at sea and never recovered. He was 31 years old. I could find almost nothing on Stevenson, one of the sailors denied the Polar Medal for unknown reasons. All I know is that he died at 64 in a hospital in Hall, England. Hurley became an army photographer, then later did some work in cinematography. He also returned to the Arctic in 1929. He died at 76. Marston the artist became a teacher, then a director of the Rural Industries Bureau. He died at 58. McNish the carpenter, who was invaluable in their rescue, but still denied the Polar Medal, resumed his career with the Merchant Navy. He moved to New Zealand eventually, and his life had some major downpoints. He was even destitute at one period. He died at 56 and is buried in Wellington with a statue of his beloved cat, Mrs. Chippy, having been immortalized in bronze next to him. Blackborough, our stowaway, spent three months recovering from his surgery. He tried joining the Royal Navy, but was denied due to his amputation. He joined the Merchant Navy and served until 1919. He then became a boatman, married, and had six children. He died at home of chronic bronchitis and heart disease at the age of 54. Crean, one of the three to cross South Georgia, resumed a career in the Royal Navy. 
After the war, he opened a pub called the South Pole Inn, and it's still in business today in Anniskull, Ireland. It is 100% on my bucket list to go there one day. He died of complications due to a burst appendix not being treated quickly enough, and passed away at 61. Worsley, their captain and navigator, earned the name Depth Charge Bill in World War I because he sank three submarines in the war. He served with the Red Cross in World War II and even searched for buried treasure at one point in his life. He led a full and adventurous life. He died at age 70. Frank Wilde, Shackleton's second-in-command and closest confidant, was sent to the North Russian Front, where he proved to be an excellent soldier. He worked a variety of jobs throughout his life. He settled in Klerksdorp, South Africa, where he died at age 66. And what of Shackleton? When he returned from the expedition, he volunteered for the army. He was sent to Buenos Aires, where his orders were to boost British propaganda. It's reported that he was drinking very heavily at this time. He was not a diplomat, and he failed to persuade Argentina to enter the war on the Allies' side. In 1918, after suffering from a heart attack, he served with the North Russia Expeditionary Force in the Russian Civil War, advising British forces on Arctic conditions. He was discharged then from the army, but was able to keep his rank as major. In 1919, he published his book South, which was a main resource I used for this series. He went on a lecture circuit about the expedition, but quit in 1920. It doesn't seem that it was as successful as he had hoped it would be, but he was bored with it anyway and was itching for another adventure. He was able to raise some funds from financial backers and acquired a 125-ton Norwegian steeler ship, which he named Quest. His plan was to circumnavigate the Antarctic continent and explore some of the lesser-known sub-Antarctic islands along the way. The Quest expedition left England September 24, 1921. Several former members of the Endurance expedition signed up, itching for the adventure and the strange comfort they found in the Antarctic. On the way, Shackleton suffered a heart attack, but refused to cancel the expedition, so they continued until they hit South Georgia once again in January. Macklin, one of the physicians from the Endurance Expedition, joined Shackleton on this one as physician as well. Shackleton called Macklin into his chambers, and the physician was honest with him. Shackleton was pushing himself too hard and drinking himself to death. He told Shackleton that he was overdoing things and that he should try to lead an easier life. Shackleton was not pleased with this advice, to which he replied, quote, you are always wanting me to give something up. What do you want me to give up now?" Unquote. To this, Macklin replied, Chiefly alcohol, boss. A few moments later, Shackleton suffered another heart attack and died. He was 47 years old. His life is usually accepted as the end of the heroic age of polar exploration. Hussey, who had also been on the Endurance, offered to travel with Shackleton's body back to England, but Shackleton's wife Emily wired a message back saying she wished for his body to be buried in South Georgia. This seems strange. Throughout this research, I was extremely surprised at how Shackleton never mentioned his family in his biography. 
He was never home, not much, and when he was, he was always looking for a way to get as far away as he could. He and Emily had three children, Raymond, Cecily, and Edward, but you would never know that from his writings. Maybe Emily didn't want him to be buried in England because she knew how much Shackleton loved the Antarctic. Perhaps he had even asked her to leave him there if the occasion ever arose. Or maybe not. We don't know. Maybe the reason was more heartbreaking. He left his wife in deep debt, and she had to move in with her daughter in Sussex until King George granted her an apartment at Hampton Court, where she lived until she died in 1936 at age 68. Frank Wilde, Shackleton's closest companion and most loyal crew member, asked that he be laid to rest next to Shackleton when he died. And 72 years after his death, Wilde's ashes that had been lost were recovered by a British author and historian named Angie Butler. And on November 27, 2011, the ashes of Wilde were buried next to Shackleton on South Georgia in the Whaler Cemetery next to the ruins of the old whaling station. The epitaph reads, Frank Wilde, 1873 to 1939, Shackleton's right-hand man. Today, the grave of Shackleton is often visited by travelers to South Georgia, and it's customary to make a toast, usually with whiskey, to the life and journey of Shackleton and everyone who had a hand in the great, disastrous, heroic, tragic, adventurous tale of the Endurance. Shackleton was a complicated man. He was driven by ego, by wanting a place in history. He was brash, made a lot of bad decisions, held grudges, and never seemed to find a place that brought him what he was searching for. But he also had courage and was someone who could accomplish things that most of us would define as impossible. And in the end, he made history after all. Shackleton, wherever you are, I hope you and your crew are warm, I hope you're happy, and I hope you finally found your way home. That brings us to the end of the Shackleton series. It was a pleasure bringing this story to you, bringing the lives of the crew of the Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition back to life just for a little while. And although I'm excited to move on to the next epic saga of history, I'll miss them. If you have any questions about the expedition or even some new information you'd like to share, you can reach me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do that at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. All patrons get free stickers, access to the members-only feed, as well as other benefits that only get better at each tier. Please consider writing a review, following, and rating the show on iTunes or wherever you listen. The more people who subscribe, the more attention the show will get. Your support makes a colossal difference. And thank you for listening to this series. I worked so hard on putting it all together, and knowing you're out there enjoying it makes me feel like all the many, many hours were worth it. So join me again in two weeks' time for another bit of history handcrafted for the most curious of minds. I've been your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and until we meet again, dear heroes of podcast land, 
Go make some history.